I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. Well, I got to tell you, I'm feeling a bit sad today as we are coming to the end of our journey through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. I've been kind of looking back on the whole series and realized, man, there is just so much in this book, and I hope I did it justice. There was so much more. I could have explored lots of rabbit trails I could have gone down. Lots of cultural parallels to our times in terms of excesses, moral issues, paganism, the worship of false gods, religious pluralism, false teachers, conflict in the church, and the list just goes on and on. So I hope I did it justice, but let me know what you think and what your big takeaways were from this study. I'd really be interested in hearing from you. And you can do that either in the comments section of the podcast, or you can always send me an email. Uh, you can always connect with me through my website, jeffebert.com. And remember, in two weeks, we're going to begin season six of Gospel Wabi Sabi, and that's going to be a journey through the Gospel of Luke. So I hope you're excited about that. But this is season five, episode 27, on the personal touch from 1 Corinthians 16. Now, I messed up on the numbering of the podcast somehow last time. And so there are two episodes labeled episode 25, and I hope I didn't confuse you too much with that. But this is actually episode 27, and we'll finish off chapter 16. Now, the main topic throughout the entire book of Corinthians is about trying to live out Jesus's words to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. In the world, surrounded by an atmosphere that is often toxic to faith in Christ, morally, intellectually, financially, emotionally, for families, for true community. Same as today's cultural mess, but as we finish, we'll get one last glimpse at those early followers of Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, and how they learned to navigate all the twists and turns of life. So we're going to be in chapter 16, starting with verse 5, and going on through to the end. And let's listen as Paul wraps things up. Paul writes, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while and even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brothers, Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers, and he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard and stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they had supplied what was lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit and yours also, and such men deserve recognition. 
The churches in the provinces of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. If you're a fan of science fiction or adventure movies, then you probably know the Matrix series of movies. The original Matrix film released in 1999, it starred Keanu Reeves and introduced us to the leather-clad blend of kung fu action and metaphysical musings. It fueled box office sales to more than $450 million. In The Matrix, the real world has been taken over by computers that keep humans in bondage by creating a false reality in their minds. The computers electronically feed a virtual reality into the brains of all the captured humans. The humans think they are free, but they are actually entombed in pods where their bodies are used as an energy resource. A few of the humans have escaped their pods and are battling the machines. But unlike the computer-induced dreamland called The Matrix, the real world is full of sweat, pain, and combat with the computers at every turn. Dazzled by the special effects, the sci-fi story, the kung fu, and the R-rated violence, it's easy to miss the fact that The Matrix is also a spiritual film series. I mean, it's just saturated with religious symbolism, probably just to generate conversation about it. But there are names like Trinity and Zion. There's a baptism and a betrayal. Keanu Reeves is called Neo, which means new. And his mission foretold by prophets is to reveal the truth that will set humankind free. In the first film, Neo gives his life for others, and then, like Christ, rises from the dead more powerful than ever. One of the main characters is named Morpheus, and he has a hovercraft called the Nebuchadnezzar, and its license plate reads Mark 3, number 11. The Gospel of Mark 3, 11 says this, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him, and cried, saying, You are the Son of God. Well, an internet search turned up a list of almost 50,000 websites and chat rooms dedicated to discussing the Matrix and religion. Morpheus crystallizes the spiritual message this way. He says, You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. The truth is that you are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. The idea of waking up, of opening your eyes to the spiritual dimension of life, that is the essence of the gospel. And spreading this message is a, is a small band of humans who have escaped from the coma of the matrix and are working to overthrow it. And my friends, that's the church, a unique community of people called together by God to be agents of change in this broken world, a new way of relating to each other called koinonia, or fellowship, or relationship. Now, these past few months, we've had the privilege of getting an intimate portrait of the followers of Jesus who were living out this tension of being in the world, but not of the world, in that ancient city of Corinth. There's a small band that has come together really against an overwhelming force. 
Now, we've heard the story of the rapid spread of Christianity in the ancient world after Jesus' resurrection. It began in Jerusalem. You all remember Acts 2.41, that those who were accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 3,000 saved in one day. Wow. But you know what? That was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, quite frankly, was easy. There were thousands of people who had met Jesus in person, who had heard him preach, or at least had heard of him. They all knew of his execution. They all wondered over his body missing from the tomb. Where was it? So when the Holy Spirit came with power, 3,000 believed in one day because Jerusalem was already fertile soil. But Corinth was hard and rocky dirt. The barriers to the Christian faith were much higher, the walls much thicker, was this multicultural crossroads of the ancient world, had this oppressive spiritual paganism, this sensuality or sexuality, materialism. No one had ever heard of Jesus. No one had ever seen him. No one had any connection with the Jewish history or with Old Testament prophecy. This was all totally new. And so there were no mass conversions in Corinth. Asking people to wake up to a new reality, to take a huge step away from their known world to an unknown world, that was not an easy place to preach that message because it was not an easy place to follow Christ. So conversions came one at a time. And the church faced hard issues. I mean, you talk about a melting pot of Jews and Greeks and people from all over the world, slaves, slave owners, rich and poor, men and emancipated women, all thrown together. Was there friction? You bet. Was there power struggles, personality conflicts, doctrinal, sexual ethics, accountability, discipline, marriage relationships, singleness, worship, sacraments, spiritual gifts, resurrection, etc.? Those were all their issues going on. It was not an easy group of people, but they were brought together under the banner of Jesus Christ. And John White writes in his great book, The Fight, he says this, Your brothers and sisters in Christ are not perfect. After the first happy glow, during which you may idealize them, you will be shocked to discover bitterness, bickering, bickering, and overt hostility in the Christian family. You also discover that some Christians are stupid, ornery, tactless, stuffed shirts, hypocrites, and so on. Some slurp their soup or even have bad breath. But remember, God loves them, even though you find it hard to. And you must be charitable enough to admit that there may be some unattractive features in your own personality. All kinds of people called together into this new relationship with each other. Not easy. Flawed people, hurting people, imperfect people, but drawn together in a new relationship based on this new identity that they have in Christ. A new identity. Back after World War I, there were so many soldiers who suffered terribly from the brutality of trench warfare that many of the soldiers who were shell-shocked um, people, they didn't know what to do with them. It was sort of a relatively new thing because of the nature of trench warfare. So the doctors didn't really know how to treat them and what to do with all these traumatized men now that the war was over. 
many of whom had lost their memories and had no ID on them, on them. So they were completely anonymous. And so in France, the officials brought these traumatized men to Paris, advertised their photos in the newspaper, trying to see if they could be recognized by family members, trying to see if they could be reunited with their loved ones. And on a certain night, they brought all these traumatized soldiers to a theater, invited people to come and see if they could identify anyone. Families crowded the theater. Lights dimmed. The first soldier came out into the spotlight and kind of looking out into the dark theater, he said simply, does anyone know who I am? Does anyone know where I belong? Those two questions of identity and belonging are so important as we wrap up this season so essential to our walk of faith. Who am I and where do I belong? Where is home base for me? Is it almost overwhelming to think about the complexity of today's world? There's no monolithic culture anymore, just a crazy collection of subgroups and tribes and clans. And so this is an important question. You know, what group defines my life? Or I am, am I just a chameleon? I'm willing to bet that your neighborhood no longer defines your community. You may not even see your neighbors or ever, ever even met them. Community is defined by common interests and shared values. It's natural for people to want to join together in groups, primarily social groups, clubs, fraternities, unions, fly fishing, stamp collecting. In our day, it's important to ask if the church has become just another organization to join. A lot of religious people think of the church that way, but not if you're really a disciple. If you're a disciple... You belong to the family of God. It's a brand new something coming together from a radically pagan culture, a whole new way of life together. There's a story of Jesus in Luke 5. It says, One day Jesus was standing with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught so, such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that, when, that, that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Such a great story. So many fish the nets begin to rip. You see, the strength or weakness of the net is revealed in the knots. Where the ropes mesh together, that's where there's friction. That's where there's tension. That's how the net experiences wear and tear. It's in the knots where the ropes mesh together. If those spaces are weak, the fish are going to slip out. The strength of the net is in the knots. And so too, the strength of the church, the strength or the weakness of the church, is in how we mesh with each other. The strength of the weakness of the church determines the quality of relationships that we develop. The relational web is what holds a local Christian fellowship together. And sometimes the nets tear. And so the nets take constant mending. And this is also true of the church. After Paul finishes his letter here in chapter 16, it's all about relationships. 
all about the people who are important to him. And so he goes through sort of a list. First, there's Paul's desire for himself to spend extended time with the people in Corinth. Verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Even though this is a troubled church, Paul is letting them know that he is not giving up on them. He still cares for them, still wants to be with them. His hard words throughout the letter have only been to offer guidance and direction with a bit of rebuke where they needed it. And like a good coach, Paul has to point out you know, what they're doing well, but also has to point out where they need to improve. And it's hard to hear all that when you're sitting there in Corinth and Paul is somewhere else saving the world. Paul knows the church is local. And so even though he has in mind to take the gospel to the ends of the world, he still wants time, he still wants to find time to stop in and see his old friends in Corinth. Then he mentions Timothy, his son in the faith, his right-hand man. Paul is sending the very best to them, and they know it. And then Apollos, the great teacher, mentioned earlier in the book when people were picking up sides about who was the best teacher, who they were going to follow. And maybe people wondered if there was now a split going on with Paul because of it. Well, nope. Paul and Apollos are tight even when there were people who were trying to get in between them and spread dissension. And then a list of other supporters, the household of Stephanus, devoted servants of the Lord, Fortunatus, it doesn't say this, but I think his nickname probably was Lucky. You know, get it? Fortunatus. Then Achaeus, Achaicus. We learn elsewhere that he was a freed slave from Achaia. And those three refreshed Paul's spirit. And just think, what a great way to be remembered as a person who is refreshing. Paul was refreshed by them when he needed it most. Then Priscilla and Aquila, that dynamic couple seen often in the book of Acts. And then all the brothers, they're all one family in Christ. The knots are strong and tight and the net's going to hold. And so in the end, the Corinthians are following the model that Jesus had left in John 13. After he washed their feet, Jesus gave the great command to love one another, to create, as John Stott puts it, a new society. The surrounding pagan world was dark, filled with superstition and fear, cruelty. Human life was very cheap, it was filled with sensuality, and common morality was non-existence. It was survival of the fittest. Yet the church, this, this new community of people, had this indomitable hope and was growing, and nothing could quench it. People found something in the fellowship of the early church that was unbelievably good. See how they love one another, was the repeated phrase. And oh, that that should be true today. A church should be an island of hope in the sea of despair. An island of hope in the sea of despair. There's an old joke about the difference between heaven and hell. In hell, people are all standing around a big pot of stew, and everyone is famished and desperate to eat, practically starving. Each person has their own spoon, but each spoon has a handle so long that it could not be used to reach their own mouths. It would bypass their head completely. And so they were starving to death. Now in heaven, they had the same pot of stew, same groups of people standing around the pot, and the same long-handled spoons. But in heaven, everyone's happy and well-fed. Why? They learned how to feed each other. They learned how to feed each other. I think that's the situation of the Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. In fact, that's our situation today as well, if we could only learn how to feed each other. So here are some main takeaways, I think, from this letter of 1 Corinthians, and particularly this last chapter. Wake up from the dream 
to the spiritual dimensions of life. Build a new community. Realize there will be tension. There will be problems. If you've got people, you're going to have problems. So be prepared to deal with the tears, the friction in the relationship, remembering that the strength or weakness will be revealed in the knots, the relationships where people come together. And the best takeaway from the journey through Corinthians, if we could only get one verse right, think of the difference for you and for your local church. If we could only do this one verse right, verse 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be people of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Wow. If we could only just live out that one verse, what a powerful place the church of Jesus Christ could be. So have a great week. I hope this has been a good study for you. And we'll see you in two weeks when we begin season six on the Gospel of Luke. Take care. <music>